Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Like many people, it's taken me years of experimenting with food, adding ingredients here, cutting them out there to find the perfect diet. I go heavy on the plants, light on the grains, and medium on the healthy fats to feel energized, happy, and alert. And I can find them all on Thrive Market, the largest online marketplace in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries shipped straight to your door. They're offering an amazing deal right now. Get $60 of free organic groceries plus free shipping. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen now. Their homepage lets me filter through a wide selection of thousands of products based on my values. I just click a few buttons to shop for their widest assortment of certified organic, non-GMO, paleo-friendly foods out there. I don't know where else I can access my go-to snacks like Simple Mills flourless crackers, pantry staples like pasture-raised ghee, and organic apple cider vinegar, and treats like heavenly organic chocolates, all in one go. I just add my weekly haul to my cart, check out, and get back to my life. Oh, and did I mention that their prices are insane? They cut out the middleman to offer up the 50% off items sold. And now they're giving you an extra $60 in free groceries and free shipping. Just visit thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen now. So to all of our vegan, gluten-free, and paleo listeners out there, welcome to a new shopping experience that makes it easier than ever to live with specialized diets. Again, check out thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen for $60 in free groceries. There is no one other place I can go that has such an enormous variety related to the way I eat and the way I live. And I know if it's on Thrive Market, it's going to be good for me and my family. Hi, it's Colleen here, co-founder and chief brand officer of Mind Body Green. When we think of beauty here at MBG, empowerment comes to mind. To us and to me personally, the two simply go hand in hand. Milk and Honey is a line of clean, small-batch skincare made in Austin, Texas that was founded by lifestyle entrepreneur Alyssa Baer. Milk and Honey is committed to sourcing and using ingredients that are as clean as possible. They choose organic, plant-based, above all else, and make thoughtful, informed choices on non-toxic, synthetic ingredients when organic just isn't possible. One of my favorite factoids about the products is that they are developed with the input of 50 estheticians that work in the Milk and Honey Spa. Each one is tested and approved to make sure they're up to snuff. If you're looking for a product to try, the cream deodorant is a bestseller. We're offering the listeners of MindBodyGreen 25% off your first order on MilkAndHoney.com. Use code MindBodyGreen25 to redeem. That again is MindBodyGreen25. 25 to get 25% off your first order on milkandhoney.com. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. 
Now let's go back to the podcast. It is such a treat today to have two of my favorite people in the world, people we consider family here at My Buddy Green, the lovely couple Julie Pyatt and Rich Roll here on the podcast. We've known Rich and Julie for eight years, and we've seen our children grow, our brands grow, and wellness grow, for better or for worse, which we'll talk about. They've recently collaborated on an incredible new cookbook, The Plant Power Way Italia, which is a sequel to their first best-selling cookbook, The Plant Power Way. In addition, Rich has written one of my all-time favorite books, Finding Ultra, and Julie's written one of my all-time favorite books with one of my all-time favorite titles, This Cheese is Nuts. Together, Rich and Julie are a tour de force they are an inspiration, and they are a couple that Colleen and I consider dear, dear friends and family. And that is why today, Colleen is joining me for this very special interview as we have Rich and Julie on the podcast. Julie and Rich, welcome. Thank you. So good to be here. I'm, is, I'm honored to be back. I feel like I was just here. So you were just thank here. Thank you for having you're me. One of, on. You're one of the select few who's a repeat <laughs> yeah. offender on the MBG podcast. Well, I'll try not to repeat myself. <laughs> well, it is an honor to have you both here. We've known you guys for eight years, and which has been amazing, and we're going to talk about. So I, we thought it was fitting that we'd have the, the whole unit. So Colleen and I, Mind Buddy Green, Rich and Julie together, and you know, getting to this amazing new book, Plant Power Way, Italia, which everyone must buy. I think it, for, for me, this, this journey to the book started, we, I still had, Colleen and I talk about the best vegan meal of our life was in your home in 2012, which if memory serves, was an Italian meal. Was it? I can't remember. It <laughs> was. I want to say it was lasagna. I think you made lasagna. Oh, yeah. I made the lasagna from the Plant Power Way. So we, we like yes. to think that we played a role in this in this book. Well, well you have, definitely. <laughs> you definitely have. You were some of my early tasters. So um, I remember, you guys, it was really fun cooking for you. You enjoyed that meal. And I thought I was on to something, and you gave me some good confirmation. So I'm I'm honored that you remember the meal. That oh, makes yeah. me feel really Best vegan really meal of our good. life still. Totally. 2012, July 2012. Hillary Biscay was there with her Mike, Mike, Mike uh-huh. the Iron Man duo. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you said that that you believe you've played a role in the creation of this book, but it's much larger than that. You've played a role in the in, in our life, you know, like you said, like you said, we've known each other for eight years and it's been really cool to, you know, watch what you guys have created here. It's really something to behold. And uh, it's an honor to be able to kind of, um, you know, be along for for the ride that you've created for all of these people. Yeah, and be a, be a part of the whole, you know, revolution and movement that you guys have created and all the amazing people that you've connected us with and the amazing events and revitalize. And it's just there's no end to the goodness that's coming out of you two and then Mind Body Green as a result. Oh, thank you so you much. You guys are so sweet. Thank yeah. you so much. You're gonna, we're going to get all mushy and not yeah. get to the important <laughs> stuff. But this is about you guys, not us. So talk, let's talk about this amazing book and the inspiration for Plant Power Italia. Yeah. So the Plant Power Way Italia is a, a coffee table book, and it is the follow-up to the Plant Power Way, which was rich in my first book. And in the Plant Power Way, we 
Um, we created the book with the intention of inviting the reader to feel as if they could pull up a chair and sit with us at our family table. So which is amazing. Which is really sweet <laughs> that you guys share that experience. And so now I feel like the, the next step was to take this into our communities. What we've done is we've expanded our family to include our community tribe, and we do these extraordinary retreats all over the world, and our favorite location is in Italy at this villa, Aisolana, that where I used to produce yoga, yoga retreats since 1996. So from 1996 to 2003, I produced yoga retreats, and then we went through our famous financial collapse for <laughs> nine years. So we were benched for a while. Uh, but then when we, you know, Rich had Finding Ultra had become so well-read and known and celebrated, and his podcast, the Ritual Podcast, and also my podcast, Divine Throughline. So finally we had this community, and I knew that if we went back there with the intention of sharing plant-based cuisine for the week – as well as yoga, transformation, all the, um, you know, expansion through the different things that we do, they're running, yoga, meditation, all these things, that it would truly be something extraordinary. And so what I did is I set out to create the menu for that week, and that's quite a lot of meals because we have 40 people, and it's basically Saturday to Saturday. So I was like, well, that's almost like a third of a book there. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did is I started creating and, you know, Italian cuisine is, I think, some of the most loved food on the planet Earth. And the beauty is that before this book or kind of simultaneously with this book, I was perfecting uh, plant-based cheese, which I presented in my book last year that was published in June, This Cheese is Nuts. So the beauty of this book now is that I've taken my expertise from the Plant Power Way, which are very family, hearty, creative, delicious food. Like we're not talking about eating a piece of lettuce here. Like this is a full <laughs> culinary experience. And then I've married that with my um, expertise in plant-based cheese and what is one of the most important elements in Italian food is the cheese. So I now was able to step into this category of cuisine and really love it and really pay homage to this amazing people in this amazing country and present over 125 recipes of beautiful, plant-based, vibrant Italian cuisine. What I love about it, too, is with Italian it's not a starting place. Most people say for, for plant-based cuisine, vegan cuisine, most people will be like, oh, Mexican, Indian, like that's the natural place people will go. Like Italian is one that's not easily conquered, if you will. And so no one's really done that. People, it's, it's heavy in cheese, heavy in dairy. Most people are like, oh, I can't, well, can't do Italian. Yes, that's, that's true. And it's also, though, one of the most beautiful regions full of so much beautiful mana from the plants, you know, because the ingredients, I mean, why is it that Italian food is so delicious? Well, one of the reasons is the love, which Rich and I addressed in our video campaign for this book, the amore <laughs> of Italians. And uh, but the you know, they really do have pure, beautiful ingredients, you know, all the fresh herbs and lettuces and arugula. And, you know, you've never eaten a tomato until you've eaten a tomato in Italy. So there is a lot there that that actually made it very seamless. And I know it's like choosing between children, but do you have any favorite recipes in the book? Oh, wow. 
Uh, the eggplant parmigiana is fall down on the floor. Um, <laughs> there is a walnut porcini uh, sauce uh, that is over a fettuccine that is it's just it's so rich and uh, has that hearty warm kind of flavor. Um, I also uh, presented an amazing uh, chocolate orange cake that Ooh. is with a thick balsamic glaze. And when you see the photo, you're going to be like, oh, my God, she's this insane chef. I can never do it. And when you read the directions, it's so easy to do. Um, you're speaking my language. It's, it's really, really good. And then, of course, you know, the cheeses in, in the dishes like lasagna. And we have, you know, an Alfredo sauce. We have arrabbiata. And one of the cool things about this book, too, is that I was able to feature – these amazing mushrooms that Mother Nature has given us from the woodlands, which mimic the taste of the sea. And I have to give credit to this amazing mushroom vendor named Dirk. He had, he's the <laughs> L.A. fungi. And he was at the farmer's market, and he's a, a German man who was professionally trained, like highly trained chef. And he took my hand and kind of started introducing me to mushrooms. And he introduced me to king oyster mushrooms, which are featured in this book with a butter sage sauce. And when you slice them, they are exactly like scallops. It's, it's shocking. It's so crazy. Then he also introduced me to lobster mushrooms. Have you ever heard of a lobster mushroom? No. Okay. I've heard of lobster. And so mushrooms, lobster mushrooms. Not. And when I post this on Instagram, people like they they you know they reply and they're like, "I'm unfollowing you because you know lobster isn't vegan." <laughs> and I'm like, "No, it's a lobster mushroom, right? They're actually orange, and if you smell them, they smell like the sea." And there's another mushroom called a chicken mushroom, which if you I found out that if you cook it without using moisture. It will stay very dry, and you can tear it just like a white chicken breast. It has the same texture. And then another amazing mushroom is a chanterelle, which just has this beautiful flavor to it. So I was able to present some very special recipes in the book. And I know these are specialty mushrooms, but many people all over the world have access to some kind of mushroom supplier. Also, you can order online from Dirk if you're in the U.S., if, you know, via Amazon or whatever. But it's something to, to know. It's very interesting, and it kind of mimics my knowledge that there are there are many ways to create tastes, and that this is what I discovered with this cheese is nuts, by having an open attitude and willingness to receive something different than what you know to be true, you can experience life in a super fulfilling way. And I found this in cuisine to be able to have these sea tastes, to have a lobster mushroom risotto the, you know, king's scallops with the sage butter sauce. And then um, I did a chanterelle risotto as well. And then um, with the chicken mushroom, I did a lemon piccata sauce over that. And I also offered a tempeh as an option so that if you can do the sauce over a tempeh as well. Um, but anyway, so that was a really, a really fun experience. Go so ahead, besides Colin. mushrooms, if I'm looking to stock my kitchen and pantry with some Plant Power Italia essentials. Mm -hmm. What are they? What are they? Plant Power Italia essentials. It would be a really good quality flour. Um, the whole book, much of the book is gluten-free, but not the entire book because I wanted to have some classic pizza crust and classic pasta. So 
if you're not going to be eat, you know, be adhering to the gluten-free all the time, I would at least order a really fine quality double O flour from a specialty mill. You can order a big bag, it'll last you a long time and it's worth that. But other than that, I mean, aside from the cheeses, um, there's one specialty ingredient in the fresh mozzarella that is not common, and it's called modified tapioca starch. So let me be clear, that is not GMO starch. It's not genetically modified. It's just modified in the process, and it's used in baking and these kind of things. So that's a specialty ingredient you would have to have. There's um, Other than that, though, you need a bunch of fresh ingredients. So your favorite pasta in a package, if that's what you're going to use for the sauces to, you know, be poured over, or if you're going to make it, you'll use the the flour that I just mentioned. But predominantly, it's fresh herbs, basil, tomatoes, potatoes, um, you know, arugula, um, capers, olives, you know, all the things that we know to be Italian. So it's it's a pretty fresh book. And the last thing, the other thing that I want to say is. The one thing that we did discover in collaborating with the chefs at Aisolana, the villa, is that the one thing that Italians really don't embrace the same way that those of us in the plant-based community or the wellness community kind of do is the creation of salads. Like, they just don't eat salads like that. And so it's been a blast working with the chefs, and it's been this amazing experience, but that's the one thing that hasn't clicked. So I want to also say that this book has an extraordinary salad section that I'm very, very proud of. Um, and what I did is I took the the basics and then just um, creatively expanded on that and added a lot more ingredients. Um, my minestrone soup is full of greens and herbs, so it's it's a field green minestrone. It's not a minestrone <laughs> with no green in it. So this is this is why Rich and I call this the new evolution of Italian cuisine. It's Italian cuisine 2.0, which is better and still paying tribute to this beautiful people and this beautiful food. What's your favorite vegetable to work with? Oh, it's so hard to pick <laughs> my favorite vegetable. Um, I don't know. But I, the other thing that I'd like to offer, too, is, I don't know, I'm feeling now I'm eight years into this journey of being vegan and, you know, living and creating recipes this way. And I did feature some whole foods, like just some whole roasted turnips and Jerusalem artichokes or a whole eggplant that's just roasted and then you mix some um, nut parmesan in it after it's made. Super easy. And the photo's gorgeous. And my publisher was like, well, I mean, this isn't really a recipe. But I really felt that we need to return to the fact that, you know, eating a whole food is really amazing. Like, that's mm-hmm. really beautiful. So um, I hope people eat, just, you know, prepare a couple recipes and then include a whole food, you know, during the day and in their food experience. Well, I love that and done well. Like that's a lot of like great chefs and restaurants that aren't necessarily vegan restaurants or plant-based restaurants are getting back to that. And often it comes back to like focus on like simple ingredients done well, like focusing on sourcing and less of the the sauce and the fake stuff. And like if you you know eating like a a real awesome tomato can be quite amazing. It doesn't oh, yeah. need all that stuff. Definitely. And that's like the, I think the root of like eating like a plant-based diet is like really focusing on awesome ingredients. Yeah. And the other thing that I like to just offer is that 
I'm a mom of four and sometimes five, and I usually have two or three <laughs> other people other living story. with me. I'll tell you that later. <laughs> but I'm really busy. I'm an artist, musician, author. I'm doing many things. And I don't have, like, if a recipe is too complicated, I'm just not doing that. <laughs> you know? So all of my books, the recipes are shockingly simple. And my skill is to reduce. I reduce the ingredients. So like in design, I think in early in my design career when I was creating things, you're, you're blocked, so you're over-creating, right? You're creating sure. stuff that's just really... And then as we learn, as we become seasoned, the beauty in design and art is really the less is more. It's the simplicity. So within my recipes and as I embrace food as art and approach this whole expression as art... I'm in the simplicity. And if I can make it less ingredients, I have no, like, that's just as beautiful to me as, you know, as something comp, probably more beautiful to me than something complicated. Mm -hmm. Because I'm trying to offer this tool, this book that can be somebody's guide for their entire family's life. And they can get the foundation and get the inspiration and actually be able to achieve these recipes. I know that even someone who doesn't cook can cook out of my books. And I take great pride in that because then it's useful. Then it's actually in their family's life and changing everything, actually. So you both have your individual books. And this is your second book together. So what's that process like working together on books? <laughs> Versus, and how, how do you, you know, as a couple that works together, we're always intrigued and asking questions. You know, we make it work and, and we're lucky, but we definitely have moments where that are more difficult. Yeah, it's a, it's a dance, right? It's a ballet and sometimes it's, it's not the most elegant ballet. Uh, I would say, first and foremost, with respect to, to the Italia book, that this is really Julie's creation. I mean, my name is on the book, but this was Julie's thing through and through. So I was really kind of in the shadows supporting her, you know, creative talents to create this. Um, but it was really her show, uh, with respect to this, but yes, we do, we do work together. We, you know, we sort of have our own projects. Like I have my podcast, she has her podcast. I go do my thing and she, she has her thing. And then we kind of come together, um, in this, you know, one plus one equals four equation from time to time to, you know, create something greater than the sum of its parts. And then we kind of go and uh, go back and do our own thing. So it's been a, um, a process of trying to navigate the boundaries of working together professionally and also having a personal life as being, you know, husband and wife and, and parenting children and all the things that kind of, you know, come with growing a family. And I think, uh, you know, what we've learned, and Julie can probably speak to this much more eloquently than I, uh, is is a couple things. I mean, first of all, Julie and I are very different people. We work differently. We have different work habits. We have, you know, we have different ways that that we approach what we do professionally. And so it's been a, a journey of trying to respect each other's processes and not trying to get Julie to work the way that I do or, or her trying to get me to work the way that she does um, to, you know, kind of have those boundaries around that. And also to be clear about when we're working and when we're just having personal time so that as you know when when you when you're passionate about your work like it, it will bleed into everything right and then suddenly every conversation that you have is just about you know your professional goals and obligations and logistics and things like that so i think it's important and we've been together 20 years it's 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 been crucial for us 
to carve out that personal time where it's not about work and it's just about our relationship. Yeah, and if I can just add to that, I think that the Plant Power Way as a as a you know a brand that we have created together, it sort of is the family. It's the lifestyle. It's the combination of of the energies. So um, this the retreats that we do together, the Plant Power Way retreats and the books that we do together. It's it's really the global family and the lifestyle. So it's all of those pieces, and it's rich in my polarity and the opposite extreme that provides such a beautiful experience because, you know, we'll be in workshop and I'll say some spiritual thing, you know, some truth and, you know, ritual voice, like, I have no idea what you just said, you know, and everyone will laugh, (laughs) but it, it, it allows us to, you know, to soften and to open up to new possibilities and then meet, meet together and have this amazing experience. So there are so many founders and entrepreneurs and wellness leaders that come through these doors. And and one of the topics that seems a little polarizing is this concept of work-life balance. What's your take on it? Are there there clear boundaries between work and life, or is it more fluid in your world? It's very fluid in our world. I mean, I think we've been privileged enough, and we burned in the fire for enough years that we earned the ability to create you know, sort of like play, our life is play, you know, where this is working, being with, you know, some of our best friends in New York City and talking about this beautiful book that we created. So I think we very much, it's very much blurred. But I do think that within the relationship and within the family, you know, especially with social media and like everything else, like there are clear boundaries that are necessary to nourish and nurture real life experiences with actually your actual friends, you know, that I can, I'm so glad I can physically touch you right now, (laughs) but the same thing. And with the kids, you know, like we see within our children, like they're actually, some of them are very anti-social media. Like this is, they, they see it and they, they see the imbalance of it and they want, they don't want to participate in that way. And in addition, you know, rich in my relationship we have to schedule romantic time together. Like we, it has to actually be on the schedule. Does it get on the calendar? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, like our on own the calendar, calendar. Yeah. our inter, our internal calendar. And then our problem is our calendar is shared with the entire office. So exactly. that would be a little. Uh, you need people a can see. Wait, it's Jason's book. Wow, you, you guys are booked. What are you doing? Yeah. I know. <laughs> it gets to me. And also, when there's so many people around, and you know, you guys have a new baby, so you're in that whole beautiful phase of. The biggest of sleep love deprivation. Of, sleep deprivation <laughs> coupled with the biggest love affair of your life. Totally. It's absolutely, you know, the most beautiful thing in life. But what I would say is what keeps us, um, first of all, podcasting together has been super healing and amazing for us. So I encourage you guys to keep this up just even between you two. It's really interesting because you go and you sit down and turn on the mic and you have this intimate conversation because we talk very, you know, we share very intimately. So we had a conversation. We were actually in the bed in our hotel room yesterday with mics, and we were doing our podcast <laughs> for the book, but we ended up talking about these very dip, deep relationship issues and very, very vulnerable things, you know. So that's our style. That has enhanced our relationship. Like we because we actually get a lot out of it. We're not just doing an act for everybody else. We kind of share at this very deep place and then allow it to ripple out. But I would say scheduling time for your beloved during your marriage is essential. And you have to treat your relationship as important as any other creative project. Because if you don't fuel that, when you have a baby, 
all you're doing is looking at the baby, always. All eyes on the baby, always. And I had four, so <laughs> I get that. Um, you have to stop and you have to go and have your own relationship because if the parents aren't together well, then that's going to affect her. So she, in her ultimate self, she wants you to be together and have this time together. So I really encourage that that experience for parents, for couples, for sure. Yeah, I would agree with the fluid aspect of, of how we kind of navigate this, you know, work-life equation. Um, I'm not a fan of, of balance in general. <laughs> I, right. I don't really know what that means. Like, what is work-life balance? And is there actually anybody who, who, who achieves that or is, is living that on a day-to-day basis? Like, I'm, I'm much more I, – I don't – not only do I not know what that word means, I think it's the wrong word. Like, I think it's, I think it would, we would be better off thinking about, um, how engaged we are, how purposeful we are in what we do, how much fulfillment we're getting from, from our work and from our personal life and trying to kind of, you know, na- navigate the relationship between personal and professional from that perspective. Um, you know, I'm somebody who I don't do well when everything has to be, uh, equally apportioned. I do my best work and I'm the best version of who I am when I immerse myself in something that, that really fulfills me, whether that's an athletic endeavor or writing a book or the pot, any of the number of things that I do, I like to go all in and, and sort of put the blinders on. And of course you have to come out of that and that pendulum has to swing back so that you're, you know, always kind of finding your footing and making sure that you are paying attention to the most important things. Um, but I think my version of, of work-life balance probably looks a little bit different than, than other people. But do you think it's true for most people who are successful, however they measure successful, that it's probably the same? Like, I don't know anyone who's really successful, and, and whoever we're defining that, mm-hmm. who just turns it on for an hour a day and Listen, turns if you're, it off. Listen, if you're Elon Musk or you're Steve Jobs, like, you're, you, what is work-life balance? Like, they're obsessed, Right. Like, so I think there's, you know, it's maybe it's not uh, politically correct to say this, but the truth is, if you want to achieve something great, then that's going to require that's going to place demands on your attention and your focus that are going to exceed, uh, you know, what the average person is either capable of or, or willing to commit to. Yes. And that's very true. And within that, if we can't find a way to allow for space for us within that obsession or within that focus, then this relationship will, you know, will suffer. It will suffer because it needs to be treated as a beloved expression because it is, it's a garden. It's a garden of another kind. Maybe the beauty with Rich and I is that we're, we're both very independent and I never needed him to be home every day or, or in any kind of schedule. I'm very, I'm very unconventional. So as long as I'm having like I can meet him twice a month and 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 it can be amazing and that's fine. I don't need to see him for the rest of the month. That's good for me. <laughs> right. Although we work together, it's not like we're sitting next to no. each other all right. day long. Like that would make both of us crazy, I think. We're at different sides of the office. Yeah. <laughs> Got a full 25 guys yeah. between us. Out. So how do you guys do it? We're still learning. It's a work in progress. Yeah. It's definitely a work in progress and I think 
you know, in terms of the balance equation, I definitely agree with you. And I, I thought it was something that was possible and I've come to realize it's, it's not possible. And the way I approach it personally, and I'll let Colleen speak for herself is this idea of maybe not the best metaphor, um, but you know, knowing where the ledge is for you and going to the ledge, but not falling off and just being really, uh, aware of, of what that looks like for you and being aware of, okay, I'm going to the ledge, but not falling off and just really being, it comes down to awareness and, and how do you, for, for me, like, how do you get awareness of things like meditation, yoga, eating right it, it, to it, to me, those wellness is essential. I think for me as an entrepreneur or CEO, otherwise I see how people go insane. Mm -hmm. And for me, it and helps, also helps being in, in wellness, you have to, uh, you have to walk your talk. You absolutely. can't be unwell and run this company. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And <laughs> yeah. I've gotten to points where it's like on the border, it's like, fuck, I need to take care of myself and like making all these other people better. But what about me? And I think it's that, that balance. And to me, it's like an essential where if you're not doing this stuff, right, you're not going to be in tune. You're not going to be aware. You're not going to be as productive as you can be. And you're not going to be able to sleep at night. And, and it's like, to me, it's like what makes all of this possible, but knowing, getting to that limit, but being aware of I'm close to the limit. I need to dial it back or we really need to not work this weekend or get away or really need time for yoga. It's non-negotiable this time, period. I think a, an important component in that equation is being kind to yourself and being gentle on yourself. Because I think when you walk around thinking about work-life balance and how you're failing to live up to you know, some <laughs> idealized version of what that is or, or what you imagine or project, you know, on other people like, well, they're, they, they seem to have it figured out. Then you end up feeling bad because you're not, mm -hmm. you're not meeting that mark. And I don't think that that, that serves people as well. Yeah. I, I think the wellness world gives us lots of lofty expectations that aren't realistic about what work-life balance and self-care should look like. And I think when you are so passionate and so committed and are leading teams that are working really hard, wellness projects something that, that isn't really attainable and isn't going to get you where you want to go. Um, I don't take 45-minute baths. I don't get to go to hour-and-a-half <laughs> yoga classes, you know, three times a week. And it's, I think it's really about thinking, okay, stop. You know, before there was all of this wellness, you know, what did people do to tune into themselves? And, you know, and for me, what wellness looks like is actually being able to plan a week of meals on a Sunday and know that I've like taken care of how I'm going to eat for the week. It means going on a walk with my child. Um, you know, what may have been, a, you know, a 45 minute or an hour long boutique fitness workout in my 20s, you know, that's what working out means to me now is getting time with Ellie and maybe it's on a stroller going on a walk around Dumbo. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's just a lot of expectations put on you know, women and, and leaders in general of, of what that should look like. And I, I always like to have a reality check of what actually works. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you look on Instagram and you see these idealized <laughs> versions of like, you know, habits or the two hour morning routine, or, you know, it's like, <laughs> like, well, you, you do it for a day and then you fall off and then you feel bad about yourself. And then you see what other people are doing and you feel like you should be doing that. And that's, you know, kind of what I'm saying is like, you have to be fluid and, yeah. and gentle and flexible. Yeah, and, there, and there's sometimes you may have time for that and awesome. And then there's sometimes you may have time for, you know, sneaking away four or five minutes to meditate. And, and that's all you have time for. And that's cool, too. <laughs> so some of the words that come to mind when I think of you guys, authenticity, vulnerability, 
And when I look at you guys and something we've gone through personally in our journey is, you know, there have been times where the financial outlook has not been great for us. And, we, and they, those were very tough times in our relationship. And I've always admired the way you guys were so open about that and, and finding Ultra, the updated version, which you must get. You talk about that in more detail, but just share a little bit about like what that looked like and how you got through it. And I think, you know, finance is a weird thing in wellness and people have various thoughts about what that looks like and something I've always admired. You've been open about it and you've in a way, which I think a lot of people needed to hear. And for us, it was like, wow, like they went through this and they got through it. We can do this. And, and just talk about what that looked like and how you approached it too. Because as you mentioned, you guys, different outlooks, different, you're aligned in so many ways and, and you're one plus one equals four, but two different approaches. Completely. Yeah. Two different approaches. Yeah. Well, it's, um, yeah, let's see. So, I've always been a person that believed that all of our answers for our life fulfillment exist within our own hearts. And I've always been a natural entrepreneur since I was little. And, you know, had a, I had a fashion company. I was a fashion manufacturer. And when I met Rich, he was newly sober and struggling with, you know, reconciling his recovery, um, also working in a profession that he actually hated. He was a lawyer. He was very smart. He went to Stanford and Cornell, and he was very, very intelligent. But the profession was counter to the design of his heart. And so he was giving the universe mixed messages, like, yes, I want you. No, I don't. Like, please give me a love job. No, I hate you. So, And he wasn't consciously doing that, but that's really the energy. So the law career was never really happening. It wasn't really working for him. It was a big struggle all the time. And when we met and got together, you know, he, we got together and I'm this crazy, you know, wild free hippie. Maha yoga. Yeah. And I'm Maha yoga. I'm like, that's right. I'm like, live your dreams. Like, this is your life. Like, let's, you know, let's create something. And so in those early days, I had a vision. I had a website and a company called Jai Lifestyle. It was a lifestyle. And I was doing interior design. Um, and then I also had a community that call, was called Jai Tribe, and we were doing kirtan in our teepee and, um, you know, having, you know, events and spiritual workshops. And, um, and what else did I have? Oh, and then I was doing the retreats, Jai Yoga. So and the reason I picked Jai was Jai is an expression of victory or hail or praise. And I love the three letters, and it's such a great brand, you know, it's such a great marketing, you know, name. But what was the purpose of our life? We wanted to live a victorious life. And a victorious life means that you fulfilled your divine design, whatever your blueprint is that exists within your heart. So I came to a point in that journey where I had this lip service and, and I kind of, you know, like I felt like I had some really good ideas in wellness. It wasn't called wellness then, but I had some I really love, good what, ideas. You guys were so early. I love, what was, what, this is like late 90s? Yeah, late 90s. Yeah, late I 90s. Love it. And, you know, and I knew what I wanted to do and I had conviction and I had vision for my dreams. And we were married in front of our house, um, in front of 300 of our friends in one of the most glorious days of my entire life. And I've been married three times. Rich is my third marriage. And this, it wasn't every wedding wasn't like that, but this was literally, it was a spiritual world concert. We had gospel singers. Bhagavan Das did a Vedic fire ceremony. <laughs> um, one of my best visions was him walking on the deck next to my Republican father, you know, half naked. And then, you know. We just watched Wild Wild Country on oh, Netflix. Oh, I did so. too. Yeah. We, could, we have to do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> totally. Please, please, please. 
So anyway, so um, so here we had started our new life together. I was four months pregnant with our first daughter. I had two children from a previous marriage, Tyler and Trapper, who you guys know. And I wanted this dream for myself, and I wanted this dream for my husband. And so I don't know why or how, but I felt resolved and completely aligned to support us both to visualize that dream. And that was this extreme faith that carried us through the entire financial dismantling of our life. Now, at that time when we got married, there was all promise. We had everything going for us. There was no reason that everything wouldn't click in and we wouldn't just rise. And instead, we went through a complete financial collapse, which literally was an alchemical fire. It was a friction, a process of friction, which created a tension, which then results in the alchemy. That's how you turn a metal into gold. And so I knew during this process that we were being taken through this experience so that we could have the energetic truth to be able to be the way showers that we are becoming, that we've become and, and we are becoming. Because when you go through an experience of dismantling, There is nothing you can do to stop it. We could have sent out thousands of resumes. There was no energy. You can feel it. The energy's off. It's turned off. We had four kids, and I knew that the way through was for Rich to do what he loved. Well, what did he love as a child? He loved athletics. That was his his love. That was his nirvana. So I encouraged him to return to athletics, which makes no sense, mind you. He's in his 40s already. <laughs> he's, he's not going to be fastest at anything. He's not going to win anything for sure, right? I don't know how. It was a knowing that was in my cells. It was a spiritual conviction and a knowing where your mind would tell you, he, you know, you've got four kids. You know, I gave, then I gave birth to another daughter, our fourth daughter. And he was, you know, most people would say, go get a job. You go get a law job and you put food on the table. And I was like, no, 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 don't do that. I said, you train first. You, you see to me and the children second. And if a law job just drops in your lap, then you can, you can service it, but with neutrality, no connection to it. Because when you're going through a dismantle, if, you, if you're waking up to your spiritual presence, if you choose something that's out of alignment with your being because you're afraid of money, then it will mirror that experience of fear back on you. So what would have happened is we would have been in lawsuits. Like, you know, your soul is saying no. Your soul is saying, wake up. This is your life. So I have to admit, I didn't think it would take that long. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, the, uh, the thing that was working for me was music. So I created this. I became a musician with my two boys between the ages of uh, 8 and 10, for a seven-year process, and we, we recorded two albums together, which for me as a mother, that was enough for me to take a body for. I don't need another experience of my life than those two albums with my boys. That was how beautiful it was. And Rich was training, and neither one of those things were making any money <laughs> at all. Yeah. And so there was a lot of ceremony. There was a lot of ritual. Rich was, you know, tortured by the whole experience. I mean, he really, you know, had a lot of of conflict within him as a man. And we were at a point. I mean, I remember one time we we actually were in Starbucks and we just we broke down sobbing like in public. We were just we were totally 
wrenched. And we were like, we're either going to realize all of our dreams or be completely annihilated and none of it will have mattered. And, and we had to get a point, even within the dream, that we were still willing for that outcome. We didn't, we didn't get the net. We didn't get to have the knowing. And we had to give it over again and again and again and again. And then I was like, maybe no one needs to hear my music. I thought it was really special and it was special to me. But maybe nobody needs. Maybe it's really insignificant. Maybe it's not significant at all. But it's not for me to say, so, Mother, I give it to you. I give it back to you. And this is the depth of the experience that we went through that has created this, this scene, this movie, this illusion of romance or whatever it is we're discovering together in this specific way for us. Wow. I've, so what was it like for you, Rich? It was really hard. I have so many. Because how do you, everything, like, I'm just nodding yes, yes, yes. But I also realize when you're in the thick of shit, looking back, you know, looking at fate, God, divine, whatever you want to call it, like, it all seems, and generally life, I think, is like that. All Everything makes sense. Although sometimes there are things that are just awful and makes no sense. You just kind of, like, have to store that, at least how I process things. But it's so hard. You know, faith is one of those things that's so easy when things are going great. But when you're in like the shit and you're in the foxhole, like it's very, it's, it's incredibly it's disorienting and, and, and at times terrifying. I mean, first of all, I would say I never would have made it without Julie's conviction because left to my own devices, I would have gone and gotten a law, a law job. And there were many moments of, of, you know, feeling emasculated as, as, you know, sort of, the quote unquote, you know, sort of man in the, in the house who's, who has, who shoulders these expectations of, you know, what that entails as a father, as a husband and being unable to fulfill that role, um, was very challenging and very difficult. Um, and I think what it did, it, it is funny cause you, you look back now and it looks like it all lined up perfectly. Like it all makes sense. It's all part um, of the plan. And it all, and it, and, and you compress that time period where it looks like it, it happened, you know, much more quickly than it did. But there were many years of questioning and, 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 uh, and, and unknowing. And I think what it did was it forced us to really live in the moment to like be just completely present with what we're doing. And I would like to say that, you know, every night I went to bed terrified, like what's going to happen, you know, anxiety ridden, but we kind of acclimated to it. Like, and then you're just, it's like a normal thing to like, be like living on almost no money. And we would go to bed like, all right, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? Like Julie, Julie's whole thing was like, let's make it a game. Like, this is like monopoly, right? Like, let's make it like a board game game. that I, that I want to produce that's for being financially destroyed basically. And it's a game. And I think, you know, ultimately it was a situation that could have blown us apart as a couple. It could have destroyed our family, uh, but somehow it drew us together. And there were, there were, you know, there were ramifications for the children and, and, and the kids had to go through things that, you know, when I look back on it, I, part of me, you know, wishes I could have spared them from that. Um, but I think ultimately it, it, it drew us closer to our children and it also, um, gave them some pretty valuable life lessons, uh, about, you know, the fact that, um, you know, if you, if you have a dream, what it takes, you know, to fulfill that dream, the level of, of conviction and faith and commitment required to see that through, 
Uh, and, it, and it kind of shattered this notion of entitlement that I think is problematic in our culture right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think it's important to say, too, that as parents, of course, you know, we just want to save our children from every single fall, every single bruise, bruise scrape, and we want to give them everything. However, that is not the solution to a happy, globally integrated child, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and as I look back on it, it was in those moments. I mean, you know, we had one Christmas, we had no money. And so we formed teams and we said, you can only spend 20 bucks. So this team go away, that team go away. And on Christmas day, you know, you're going to present whatever you're going to present. And that year, you know, I called my friend Kat Vogel, who was an editor, and she came over with a camera and Trapper wrote this piece on, it was a spoof on spiritual teachers where he like dressed up like Eckhart Tolle and he <laughs> dressed up like um, <laughs> Swami Nityananda. He was like and 10. He was 10. Oh my God. <laughs> and so we shot the whole thing and, and, you know, and then she edited it for me and Christmas, you know, Rich had done, like, I think they got like, you know, some old long underwear we, no we went seven. and bought like t-shirts like Hanes t-shirts and painted them like we just made it everything was creative like mm -hmm. every, everything was like an art project yeah so like christmas morning they came down and we played that video i mean that was still one of the most fun christmases we've ever ever had and i had another experience which was just it's just hilariously crazy it was um, my daughter's six-year-old sixth birthday and i had no money and I was used to sort of like flowing with the flow. So it's like I got up and Mathis was like, it's Jaya's birthday. And I was like, it is. And I go, so I think we're going to push it. Like we're, I think we're going to, cause I'm waiting for the float, for the float, right? I'm like, I think we're going to celebrate that like Wednesday. Cause I was hoping <laughs> something was going to come in. And Mathis looked at me and she's like, it's her birthday. And I looked around and I go, you're right. I go, come with me. So I went in my closet and like got into some old stuff and found like a piece of silver or something, looked up a pawn shop. Drove down with Mathis to the corner. This is like in like Calabasas, right? <laughs> so I go, I go cruising in there with my, with my lot, you know, and I'd never done this before. I didn't kind of know how it went, but I was like, well, let's go check it out. So I go in there and we sit down and the guy takes the solution and he's like, you know, he, he like, um, paints it on so you can see what it is, right? So she's watching. I'm thinking, this is a great homeschooling opportunity. Right? <laughs> she's learning practical so skills. It's all perspective. I mean, everything's perspective. So then we left, like, I don't know, 15 minutes later was 630 bucks, wow. which obviously, like, whatever I took in there was something valuable, a lot more valuable than I got. And Mathis was like, oh, I'm so relieved. She goes, I thought we were going to have to sit in there all day until somebody bought it from us. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we went, we went from there. We went and were able to buy food. I made a beautiful cake, like a train cake. And we invited her little stuffed animals to the party. And it was just the boys and just Harry and just our family. And again, and I had money to spare. So I had groceries for the week. It was one of the most beautiful birthdays ever. Like she was ecstatic, you know, and she, so these are the type of things and throughout the dismantle, this, this is what divine through line. My podcast is about it's spiritual musings on how to live life divine. And the reason it is because nothing means anything except the meaning you give it. And so as Swami Vidyadishananda told me, he's like, yeah, you went through financial collapse. He goes, but you took it as a spiritual challenge. And I go, you're right, I did. My thing was, this experience is happening, and I can't control what's happening, but I can control who I am in the face of what that happens. So when the car re repo guy came to get my car, 
I sat down with him and like offered him a cup of tea and asked him his name and asked him if he had kids. He was completely freaked out. Like, what is going on? But I was like, I'm not going to let you take my humanity in this moment. It's a stupid car. Like, who cares? You know, I had had five Volvos with that company. And I went when I had a hard time and begged them to, like, change the payment or help me. And they just were like, screw off, you know? So I had a bank account. Like, I had over 700 credit score, like 750 or something. I don't even know if that's good anymore because we don't use credit anymore. We're just – we live on cash. But um, but at the time, you know, I went in there and I'd been a customer of them for so many years and they wouldn't even reverse an overdraft charge so that I could keep my account open. So it's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to brutalize yourself when there are there are people that are very successful in money, in the money game, that are involved in very imbalanced practices that are not honest at all? And then you have most people that are really trying to trying to do the right thing or trying to be honest or trying to pay their bills. And we're judging ourselves like very violently where – you know, someone like Donald Trump can just file bankruptcy every other day and nobody cares. I think so, they're starting to care. They may be care. <laughs> we hope. But, you know, who knows? So the point is, it's the perspective gives you the freedom. And so I kept telling everybody, like, I'm not a loser. I'm in my sacred moment. Like, we are being spiritually prepared to hold the vibration for this greater message. And, of course, everyone thought I was completely insane. A, a lot insane. of blank looks. Yeah, like, I mean, it was, that was the one thing that was really challenging to navigate was the, the, the judgment and the, the concern of others who were, like, looking upon us like, what are you guys Especially doing? Especially in Calabasas. Yeah, and, like, we're, you know, and, and we're living in this beautiful home that we can't pay for. So, like, from outward appearances, it sort of looked like we had it together, but we didn't. And it was... You know, it was it was really tricky and challenging, but you got through it. We got through it, and like it's amazing now. Um, but we got through it because of that that deep conviction and that quickening of faith, and 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 that sense that like that that commitment to the journey of really engaging the heart on the deepest level to be unwavering in our relationship to you know what got us excited and out of bed in the morning. So you mentioned journey. The journey of wellness has come a long way since we first met you in 2010. So on the, on this journey of wellness, what, what, what are some of the good things that, that you think are amazing that you've seen in this journey? And what are the, what are some of the things that you think, wow, we still need a lot of work there. It's a super exciting time. I mean, to see this explosion of interest in wellness just is so encouraging and, and makes me very optimistic about the future. Um, there's so much happening just in, in business, in awareness, uh, with podcasts and books and, and the level of, of, you know, people's, um, commitment to living more sustainably, to treating their bodies right. Like I've never experienced such a level of interest in, in these things that obviously all of us care about. Um, and I think that's super exciting from, you know, venture capital firms and people like Bill Gates investing in plant-based foods and, and people, you know, the smartest people in the world who are committed to trying to figure out um, how we can get clean water uh, to everybody and how are we going to feed, you know, 10 billion people on the horizon and how are we going to create, um, you know, clean energy. All of these things I think are, are quite amazing. And, and like I said, uh, you know, give me hope and, and, and make me optimistic. Um, I think, you know, on the flip side of that, 
what I've noticed that, that gives me pause and, and, and gives me concern is the, is the kind of, um, the siloing of information. Like there's a, there's a conversation in wellness, particularly around diet and nutrition that mimics the political dialogue that we're seeing right now, where we have these camps who are very entrenched in their point of views and get very emotional, um, about their perspective on, you know, how one should live and eat, et cetera. And I, 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 that disheartens me, you know, I don't think it's productive. Um, and I don't know what the solution to that is. Uh, and I often struggle with how I communicate around those ideas. Um, but it's something I think we need to talk about and try to figure out a way to kind of unite because ultimately I think we all agree on the larger points of, you know, living healthy and living more sustainably. And, you know, we care about our bodies and we care about the animals and the planet and all of these things. So how can we come together to create solutions that bring us together rather than, um, splinter us into these factions? Yeah. And I would just add to that. I mean, for me in a, in the spiritual sense, I'm finding as a humanity's race as a species or as a collective that we are very disconnected from our own beings. We have all this external view. We're looking out at everyone else. And there's a lot of assessment and judgment of other people, other things outside. And in my experience, the only place the solution is existing is is within the own heart of the individual. And in the wake of the Me Too movement and what's coming, you know, what's changing and what's coming to light. Um, I have discovered that we don't know how to advocate for ourselves, women especially, or feminine identified men. Um, and there's a lot of, of transformation, healing, triumph, miracles that are existing within the heart. If we can take the focus and when we see something that's out of balance, look within our own selves to locate maybe a reflection of that or where we're in balance within our own hearts, understanding that everybody is on their own journey in their own time and to cultivate an attitude of unconditional love and acceptance and respect for where everybody is along that timeline. And if you can cultivate your own connection and your own relationship, your own beloved relationship with yourself, then your life will be an example of transformation for other people. And when they, when they see you, something within you will, will wake something up in them. But because you've, you've been so self-directed and honest with your own flaws, they'll feel very good sitting next to you. Like they'll come sit next to you and it'll feel safe for them. If we've created a lot of outward projection of this is right and this is wrong and this is the ultimate truth, um, that creates a boundary, a barrier, a separation. A vi it's really, if you feel into it, it's really a violence because it's saying, um, I'm going to separate from you or I am other than you. And life is so multifaceted in so many different configurations. And, you know, I choose and I thrive and my family thrives and I feel predominantly a plant-based or plant-rich diet is very, very helpful to your own body, to your spiritual energy, 
and also to um, the planet and, of course, animals which are sentient living beings. Within that, there are many different iterations and life forms that will need different things at different times of their life. So you can't, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's so individual that it's, it's beyond, um, it's beyond standardization, like standardization. You can't say one thing is good for all people all the time. In, you know, advanced Ayurveda or Tantra, you say, well, are potatoes good? And the answer is (laughs) for whom and when. Right. So it, it matters who you are, what are you doing, where do you live, how old are you, what's going on in your life, what is your mission about? It's just, it's, well, it's beyond imagination. Yeah, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach that works for everything. And what, Rich, you were saying really resonated in that so, many, so much of this wellness dialogue focuses on the difference and, and, and not the common ground of which we can all agree on, and, and that's something that needs to change well, also yeah. go ahead oh sorry i was just going to add and jason i think we talked about this last time on this issue of of separation and common ground um you know another thing that we really need to talk about and i know this is a new kind of mission statement for mind body green is overcoming this idea that wellness is the purview of the well-heeled elite you know this is not an elitist ideal we need to really expand the conversation and the perspectives um, around wellness, diet, nutrition, all of these issues, environmentalism, so that they are available and accessible to all people. You know, right now we have this incredibly stratifi- stratified, you know, culture in which you know far too many people are living in food deserts. They don't have access to um, the healthy foods. Uh, you know, they're living at a sub- subsistence level. Uh, and this is highly problematic. So when we're talking about wellness, it's not about whole foods and superfoods. It's about food, you know, water, how do we and just, shelter. How do we just provide people with the basic um, requirements so that they can sidestep the chronic ailments that are killing millions of people unnecessarily every year? And until we solve that problem, I think that we, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and the other thing that you hit on, Julie is is how spirituality fits in all this. So we've come so far, you know, diet, nutrition, I can do DNA test, testing, microbiome, personalization. Oh my God, I eat this, I eat that. I can do everything's like measured and quantified. And, and some of that's exciting. But also what worries me and something that I have to keep track of too is like the spiritual journey. And, th- and you t- use words like energy, consciousness, things that, necess- that that can't maybe be measured and their role in life because why are we doing what we're doing anyway? Like, why are you trying to eat healthy? Why are you trying to like the, the bigger why and where does this fit in? What are you and what quantifying is, yourself right, for? And being exactly. comfortable with the, <laughs> when everything is known and everything has, there's instant gratification, dealing with the unknown and embracing the unknown and the journey. That's something I worry a bit, you know, I have to watch personally. And I think, in wellness. That doesn't show up on Instagram. The journey doesn't show up on Instagram. Right. Well, we're changing that, hopefully. <laughs> me, and, me and Shaman Durek are hopefully changing that. But no, yeah, that's very, very true. And in the kind of ridiculousness, if we want to just laugh at ourselves a little bit, which we do need humor and laugh, we got to lighten up, we got to have fun and celebrate. We're live. We're live on planet Earth. It's like an unprecedented moment in history. Like what, what are we going to see in our lifetime? And what an honor and a privilege. Um, but the thing is, it's like no, no diet is going to stop 
you know, stop your death or like, like it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not like a pill for immortality or to just be awesome for eternity. So it's just a, it's a, it's a click of like starting to understand your body as a divine instrument. It's a mechanism. It's actually like the most valuable piece of technology that you have as your own being. So I say that the, your most sustainable ecosystem, the ultimate green, is this human body that's sitting here. And this is the other level of this. I'm teaching this retreat called Beloved this year that's like about falling in love with yourself because if we really understood that this was a, a machine that houses our spiritual being, then we think about what are you putting in that? You know, it's like it, it gives it a little bit more of a focus and a, and a clarity with that. And we are spiritual beings having a human experience. You know, I did a podcast yesterday and, you know, and, and I was saying we shouldn't be apologizing for that. Like we don't have to apologize for the fact that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And it's time that we stop being so one-sided that we're only looking at the masculine principle or the linear principle of like, well, well, two plus two equals four, but there's another truth. Two plus two also equals 22. So where do you want to live? I live in the two plus two equals twenty two. Yes, right. Which I do. Makes for, it, it's so, interesting when you live with her and two plus two <laughs> equals twenty two, like all the time. The thing is, is it's like and Rich and I were talking this on the podcast that we did yesterday. Is it's okay? So I have my own Me Too story. I am absolutely ecstatic that this is being talked about and that this this, you know, totally low vibration program that's been running on this planet is being brought up. I'm like, right on, right on. And, and women need to be heard. And there needs to be a moment of that because it's more than a moment, like as much as we need. However, the truth of the matter is within us exists both energies. We are both masculine and feminine within our own selves. And the solution isn't to then, you know, kill the men, you know, it's like, it, it can't swing that far. And I just want to say again, I love men. I mean, I love masculine energy. We need it. It holds a structure for us, you know, for the feminine energy. And so as somebody who's a spiritually inclined person, we're looking always to cultivate that masculine feminine within yourself. And so if you understand that, you are both of those energies. It can never exist separately. There's nothing to fight against. Like the solution isn't to then go attack the other side. I mean, the solution is to integrate and, and to really look within ourselves where we have been dishonoring to the feminine energy. Look in your own practices, your own business practices, your own personal, even your thoughts. You know, like I use the example, uh, you know, like, all all bad drivers are women, you know, or some something that you think in your head that you don't even know where you got it. It just got implanted. So diet and wellness is about these tools in this experience, about finding a way to clear out the stuff that isn't yours and refine your relationship with yourself so that you can hear these subtle whisperings that come from the unseen. And the unseen part of life, life has masculine and feminine energies. Both are needed. So the problem with the world is that the world has only been honoring the male perspective. And that's just not true creation. That's not true. And I will use words, that's not balanced. Because a true balance, and Ayurveda is about balance. You know, it's, it's a unique prescription for 
cultivating this relationship with your own self, with planet Earth, our mother, and this cosmic realm that we're in. So we have the universe existing within our own hearts. Every potential is within each one of us. So the only time if anything shows up in your life that is, you know, challenging you or seems like a a violence or a wrong or anything, all the solution is inside your own heart. That's all it is. So whatever the tools are that help people get to that connection, that's where we're going to see these quantum solutions. We need quantum solutions for mm-hmm. what we're facing now, right? I mean, Paul Hawkins, my favorite. My He'll be favorite back and revitalize. No, thank you so much. What an amazing individual. Thank you for introducing us to him. Um, I don't know him personally. I just I, I did meet him quickly, but I love what he's presenting. But we we're going to need quantum solutions, you know, um, and that's going to come in the form of our kids. And young parents need to understand that we need to embrace that they are they have a multidimensional potential, and we don't need to put them into a system that is obsolete that is designed to make them into a widget. <laughs> so, you know. Well, one of the things that we've always admired about the family you guys have created is with four beautiful children, it does seem like they're all so in tune and tapped into their gifts and their purpose. And I'm sure it was really easy and it just happened that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And there was no work involved. (laughs) How do we do it? What do we do with, with we've got a, as you know, a 15, 15 month old daughter. What, what advice do you have? How do you do, how do, how do you do it? Well, I, I, you know, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to defer to Julie on this, but I think I will say this, you know, part of our message, a big part of our message is, you know, how do you connect and, and express your most authentic self? How can you be as, as self-actualized, as fully expressed as you possibly can be? How can you connect with your heart and live your life in full expression of, of what moves you in that way? And if that's our message, and if that's the way Julie and I have decided to live our lives, then we can't, uh, you know, we can't create an expectation on our children other than that, right? So it's been about trying to... Um, uh, support our children. First of all, respecting them as sentient, you know, independent human beings, um, treating them as such, and then trying to create support systems around each one of them to help them connect with their own hearts in their specific ways. And then when they kind of gravitate towards something, some kind of interest, our job is to like move in and support that. And that interest may not be the interest we would choose for them. It's not about that. It's about respecting what they're naturally moving towards and then filling that void to then kind of elevate them so that they can, uh, you know, really embrace whatever that interest is. And that, and when they're, you know, when they're kids, they're going to, it'll be that for a little, a minute, and then it'll move on to the next thing or whatever. And you just do that in a neutral way. That's what's so cool about the baby stage is you can just see Ellie moving into places where she just gets happy and you see it so young, which is so cool. But then, so I have a real world question. I want to hear your your answer. Can I can I answer the other one first? Absolutely. Also, I I want you to help us with the problem we have right now with Ellie. No, for sure. Let's do that. But like, I think what would be great is to like. I mean, you could talk about Mathis because it relates to like you know Jason Collins' relationship. So a couple things that I'd like to share with parents um, because I'm I had two older kids that went to private school and then they ended up moving to public school financially. 
uh, motivated. <laughs> and, th- and then they went to one year of high school and they opted to come home and homeschool. Um, both artists, both very well read, you guys would know, very personable, you know, very easy to talk to people. Like they're very great kids. Yeah, very, very, uh, very balanced beings. But they found the high school um, environment very violent and not safe for them. So I found out after their freshman year that they did not share with anybody at school that they were musicians because their choice of music wasn't the popular one of the most popular kids in school. And they felt that there was this very narrow path that you could walk down. And if you were outside of that path, that it was, it was, you were in danger of like being ridiculed or, you know, you know, at a, at a greater level, you know, bullied or whatever. And that really struck me deeply because as an artist, as a child and a child, you know, a kid in your years, like you just want them to be free and creating. So they came home and they did a hybrid thing and, and that was their experience at school. But with Rich and my girls, I made the decision, or I would say they made the decision because they came in with completely different wiring than anything I'd ever seen. And so they didn't fit into any box. Mathis was the first. And things that had worked for my boys just didn't work for her. So I had to literally throw out all my all my knowing of being a parent and just start fresh. And what I've learned through my eight years of unschooling and uh, creating a community homeschool that I, I tried to launch this whole movement, which I failed up a few times, but I did homeschool with another two families for one year. We had seven kids and a rescue dog, ages four to 13. And the focus was on a food, gluten-free, vegan, uh, plant-based food. One of the children was autistic. Um, None of the kids saw that child as autistic, nor labeled him as autistic. He was just who he was. It had no no label. And they rescued this puppy and healed this puppy basically from the brink of death into wellness. We did a lot of meditating. Um, We didn't do a lot of academia and the... Um, Rich would come home and say, like, what happened today? And we were like, well, we meditated and we made food. <laughs> but I want to tell you that the, the, biggest, <laughs> yeah, the biggest pain that we have in the culture is um, a hurt of self-esteem, you know, a pain or a violence of, of our own self-esteem. And then as parents, when we have kids, we want to make sure that our child never suffers that same pain. So we project our stuff onto the kids and we we mirror our experience. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that my kid never, ever, you know, has that experience. And what I would say to us is that it is not your child's responsibility to work out your unresolved emotional issues. Understand that your child is their own being. And as Rich was saying, from my perspective, I know that they have lived thousands of lifetimes and they are only a soul in that little age body. So I never was with my kids as I'm the parent and you're the child. That energy didn't exist with me. It was an equanimity from the very beginning. It was like, hey, I agreed to be your guardian and you're going to really kick my ass and I'm going to be here. I'm just going to repeatedly be here. But I never didn't understand that truth for me. So if as parents we can take our own responsibility and heal our traumas, because we all have little girl, little boy traumas that are inside our grown-up bodies, then we can just celebrate our children and let them be who they are. And somebody asked me once, well, what are your goals for your children? And I kind of laughed. I was like, well, 
I don't know, they're going to tell, you know, I'm here to support them. I'm there to support team. KPIs in line for them? No. <laughs> so, and the thing is, is that what I've learned is that what I wanted to cultivate in Mathis was a strong sense of knowing who she was. Because if you know your voice, then you know who you are, and then you can fulfill your life. So she started painting at a very young age. And when I saw this, because I'm an artist, I got her four by eight foot canvas right away. I just, she was three, and I got her a huge piece. And I was so surprised because she just looked at it for about a minute and then laid the whole thing out, like in a split second. Like no thought of what am I going to wait? What am I going to paint? You know, that didn't even didn't even come into the picture. We met you guys shortly after that. She had started this sort of Jackson Pollock-esque style, right? And you guys sent an email and you were like, you know, we really want to buy a piece of Mathis's art. And and uh, and so I told her, I said, they send an email and they want to know, you know, what your rate is. And she, here she was like, how old was she? Like seven or something? Yeah. So she says, what should I say? And I said, well, I think you should ask them to make you an offer. And she goes, <laughs> okay. Negotiation skills 101. So she goes, never, okay. Never be the first to put a number yeah. on so the table. So she goes, she goes, okay. <laughs> she said, okay, that sounds good. So then I sent the email. I'm like, make her an offer. She's into it. Make her an offer, right? So you guys so generously like sent back. You were like, how about, how's $350? So I remember she was sleeping in her bunk bed and I walked into her room and I said, Mathis, I said, you got an offer. And she like woke up and she said, yeah. She goes, what's the offer? What's the offer? And I said, it's $350. And she goes, oh, that's a good offer. <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, it is. It's a really good offer. And I go, isn't that great? I go, congratulations. And he's like, great. So I turn to walk away and then I hear her say, wait, who pays the shipping? <laughs> and I was like, I mean, she's such an entrepreneur, like from a little kid. So that I laugh my head off, you know. So you're like, she's so, going to be fine. So later, yeah, she's going to be fine. So I took the I took the approach that I didn't teach my kids to read. I didn't. I didn't do. I tried flashcards once, and she threw the box at my head, which was the clue. <laughs> Um, so I didn't teach them to read. I didn't teach them to write. I didn't do the little dots and go, this is how you make an R. And what I found is I just knew, I was like, well, she's going to teach herself to read when she wants to. And she did. She taught herself to read about age seven. And I'm just going to tell you this quick story because she then grew up, got older. She left art and went and chose hockey for a couple years, which I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I was like, okay. So she was doing that. And then she just came home one day and she was like, I'm going to paint again and I'm going to apply for this premier art school in LA. It's called LAXA. And she worked a year and a half on her portfolio and she was accepted last month, 28 kids out of 200 kids for her entire high school. And now Rich and my life are totally going to change because the commute is two hours each way. So we have to rent an apartment near that and we're going to have to figure it out. But we told her, if you get in, you deserve it and we'll support you in that. And I'm just, you guys know. And so I want to thank you for being these, you know, really sort of sponsors or you were like patrons. <laughs> of this artist and yeah hang on to that piece oh we still have it you've seen we've seen it I it's know, in our apartment well and mathis was delighted that that uh she got credited in that apartment therapy piece <laughs> on your on your apartment it was like you know that her that her painting was noted for being huge shocking place. point i love it well now we have an investment we have to make sure that investment uh <laughs> yeah so something uh, you curious like when when your daughter threw something at your head you know, something where, so duck. like, duck, 
But like, what do you do? So something, so Ellie now is like walking around and she's decided that when we have like tons of plants in our apartment, she's decided there's this one plant, which actually like is not good for her that she goes over to her and smiles and like, like starts attacking the plant and trying to rip it. And we're like, Ellie, no, we're like, we're trying to like figure out what's the balance of like, what do you do when you're trying to teach the child? Like, that's not a good thing. Not a good, not, not a good thing. And probably unsafe. And, and you're trying to be firm. But we're like, how do we have this conversation? Like, what, what does what does that look like for you guys? Like in the early, I think parents struggle with that in wellness. It's like you're trying to be conscious, whatever that mostly conscious is what we say, but you're trying to be firm. You're trying to teach. What does that look like for you guys? I think it's I think it's very important to understand that every child is different, and I want to say I trust mothers and fathers to know their children. So you know, it depends on the being. Like, what is the personality? Like, for instance, with Mathis. She had a lot of, she she was kind of on the spectrum. I mean, definitely on the spectrum. I never had her diagnosed, but she had a lot of very bizarre things going on, and which resulted in her being attached to my leg for eight whole years. Um, she never slept in her own room, uh, even though we tried millions of times, like taking her to get her to like set up a room and pick her own sheets. And Rich would just inevitably end up sleeping in princess sheets <laughs> because she never ended up there. But with Mathis... Um, what I discovered is she was so intense and, and didn't like so much of the world. Like we would go into a restaurant and she would refuse to sit at the table where the hostess was sitting us, for instance. And in the beginning, I was like, no, you're going to sit. I'm, you know, I'm going to do the control thing and you're going to sit where I tell you to sit. And then it would be like this crazy, you know, screaming fit, crazy stuff. And I was like, wait, this is not working. So what I did is I set her life up to tell her yes as much as possible. Because she had a lot of stuff she was dealing with, and the and world was going to tell her no. So I had a meeting, talked to the, her brothers and sisters, talked to her brothers. Her sister wasn't there at the time, and Rich. And I was like, she's not wired like we are. So please only try to say yes to her. Because I didn't want to make a groove of no. So I don't know Ellie enough yet to really give you the advice, but you have a couple options. You could remove the plant. <laughs> and if it's really if it really could be dangerous and she's eating it, you could let her destroy it and see how that feels to her and just not let her eat it, watch her hands, but just let her do it. Um, you could try to hold a boundary with a consequence, although with a baby that little, the consequence is kind of difficult, right? <laughs> it's dangerous. It's kind of dangerous. And, you know, so I don't really think that's going to go well. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. I don't think that's necessarily going to go yeah, very yeah. well. So again, it's like she's exploring, she's learning, Right. Um, and so try to create an environment where she can learn freely and where you can say yes to her right. and let her let her learn about morals and ethics maybe later. You know, I mean, there there is a place for no. And, and let me be very clear. I mean, you can tell by listening to my voice. I'm not a I'm not a placid, soft wallflower mother. And Mathis required me. She was born an adolescent. So we've been doing this adolescent thing <laughs> for a long time. She required me to say no. And, you know, I can be intense. Like, I'm not, I'm not like, oh, walk all over me. You're amazing. Yeah. I mean, the be time. conscious parenting doesn't mean like just being, allowing the child to do what the child wants to do. Like, conscious parenting is about knowing when to say no and being firm in your resolve and unwavering in that regard, but doing it coming from a neutral place. It's not the saying no. It's the energy that you carry into the saying no. So if it's very emotionally charged and, and it's upsetting to you and it creates a lot of 
frenzied kind of, uh, you know, reactionary behavior in you as parents, then that is an imbalanced response. So it's the firm no, it's creating the boundary, the healthy boundary, but doing it from a dispassionate neutral point. Yeah, and that's true. And it will happen because you will lose your shit and you will, you know, okay, so just it happens to all of us. But I think for me, what's worked for me is immediately taking responsibility. I apologize to my kids. I own it when I'm out of line. I take responsibility. And this is another thing that I would like to share as well. Don't think that as parents, if you present a picture to your child that you are perfect, that that is going to be helpful for them. As parents, we think that we have to present this kind of view that we have it all together. You know, we we have it all figured out because we're the parent. Like, for instance, I'll use this this example just with my own my own older boys. Um, I have a history of of drug use. I used drugs in high school. It was a recreational period of mine, and I've literally been drug free since I was seventeen. But I made the decision to tell my children honestly that that is the life that I had. These that's the experience that I had, and a lot of my friends or people in the community were like shocked, like, well, you, you told them that about you? Like, why would you do that? You know, you want to make sure that you're, you know, they look up to you or whatever. And I feel that to be very authentic and also very scary. Um, and when I told my boys that I had used drugs and told them, you know, what had happened and that I no longer, you know, they know I don't now, obviously we live like a very spiritual life and clean life. They were, Tyler like was exhaling they were like i'm so relieved they were relieved because they were seeing a different thing happening at school or in their community you know and then to know that their mom was not so untouchable because if we create that condition when your child does make a decision or use a drug or fall or whatever the situation is they will never want to disappoint you and they will never tell you it's too much. It's too painful. So you're creating a separation. Once again, we were talking about vegan diet and how that judgment. So if you create this greater than thou situation and you are not raw and transparent with your flaws to your kids and your journeys and how you work through that, you will create a separation from them. So my last question. So as a couple, if you could go back in time in the early days of your relationship, I, us- I usually individualize this question. And, and usually the, t- the question is, you know, advice for your 20 something self. But since, you know, we've got you as a unit and, and the amazing lifestyle, life, family, and book you've created together as a unit. So if you could go back in time when it was the early days of Rich and Julie and give yourselves advice as a couple, as a unit and your relationship what advice would that be? Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> how to answer that. that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I could pick out certain things that I wish didn't happen and try to identify maybe a healthier way of navigating some of the things that we went through. But quite honestly, I don't know that I would change anything because it's all of those experiences and the difficulties and the challenges and the imperfect way in which, you know, I tried to, you know, just speaking for myself, uh, you know, tackle things that were difficult that has allowed us to 
do what we get to do today. And I wouldn't want to deprive myself of those experiences. You know, like Julie said, like it's, it's that burning in the fire. It's that, you know, that dismantling that we went through that really uh, made, made, made us and me personally confront myself in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. So I wouldn't want to spare myself of those challenges. Um, the only thing maybe I would say is I would tell myself in that stage to perhaps exhale and and be more gentle on myself and to uh, maybe relax a little bit more that it's going to be okay. That was beautiful. Um, yeah, no regrets. It's a, it's a hard question. I would just say the only thing that comes into my feeling is um, to love more, love myself more. I love that. Julian Rich, we love you guys. We feel you're part of the extended family. We've known you for eight years. Uh, we love you. We love your family. We love everything you do. It's been amazing to be on this journey. And everyone listening, The Plant Power Way Italia. You got to check it out. Amazing book from, I'm sure what you could gather is really, really special people. And this book is a small sneak peek into all the magic they create which will fill your belly <laughs> in a really yummy and delicious way. So check out the book, check out everything they do, their podcasts, their books, their classes on Mind Muddy Green, whatever these guys do. It's amazing. Check it out. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thanks, you guys. Love you guys. Love you Thanks too. so much. Yeah. Namaste.